Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5, Acts 5. When I think of the best moments of my life, I normally think of my wedding. I think of a vacation in Hawaii. I'm going on a cruise in a one-day cruise in Alaska. That was cool. When I think of the best moments of our marriage, uh, I think of our, our children being born. I think of wonderful, you know, kind of retreat getaways with Janet that we really enjoyed. I think it's natural for us when we think of our best moments, we think of those things that are enjoyable. Isn't that natural? No stress, right? I mean, nothing but pleasure. Best moments. But in reality, could not our best moments also be some of the hardest moments that we've had to go through? And we have certainly had that as well. Janet and I have endured some difficult seasons in, it'll be 37 years this year. The first few years, it was some rough patches through there. Got a, got a new job when we lived in Denver that was stress-filled. And when I first moved back here, a, a job, not this one, but uh, stress-filled. Um, I was immature. It just created a lot of, of stress upon the marriage. Then news of a, of a troubled pregnancy caused us to cry out to God. Forging through the varied seasons of, of raising children. And then when I jumped back into ministry, the rigors of ministry. Not all of those were happy moments necessarily. But on a scale that would measure necessary lessons or maturity, certainly it would have to be some of the best moments, hardest moments. I would say the same is true for a church. I mean, if a church were to chart its best moments, would we say, oh, man, it was, you know, that one year we just grew by such and such percent. That was our best moment. Or, no, it was, remember when we built that building? Man, that was so cool. When we built the facility, that was our best moment. Were those the best? Well, could be. But could it not also be when maybe we endured great conflict and we came out more focused, we were tested and more energized toward our mission? My point is, is as we read through the book of Acts and we see the early history of the church, there were growth spurts, certainly. There were highs and there were lows. There were pressurized situations where there were, there were attacks externally upon the church from the outside. And from within as well. And when you look at all that, I'd have to say that Acts 5, verses 12 through 16, that would stand out as some of the best moments for the church. And the reason is because of the context. Consider that two of the main leaders, Peter and John, were at Solomon's porch near the temple. And they healed a man. This is just a chapter or two before this. They then preached a sermon and thousands of people came to Christ. Well, the Jewish authorities did not like that. So they called them in, threw them in jail a little bit, you know, overnight. Called them in and said, hey, listen guys, you need to quit this. No longer preach the gospel. They were threatened by all of this. So Peter and John go back to all their friends 
And they tell them, listen, we keep on this track, certainly going to be jail, probably going to be persecution. We have to expect this. I mean, not only was there this external pressure, but there was internal pressure as well. There were two Christians who had come to a church meeting. They had lied about their giving. And guess what happened? God struck them both dead. (laughs) It was kind of a, a warning to the church not to trifle with hypocrisy. Well, when I think today of ways to grow your church, killing the people in the church is not the way to start. Okay? You would think that people would just scatter. I don't want to have anything to do with this organization. In fact, Acts 5.11 says that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So you got this external pressure. And then you got this, you know, internal stuff going on within the church. What was going to happen? It proved to be one of the best moments for the church. And what we read about in, in Acts 5, the church was unified, it magnified, and it multiplied. And the church becomes kind of a, a miracle territory for God to work. Let's take a look at our passage. Let's all stand. Acts 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Father, as we consider this passage, it is a temptation for us to think that, well, uh, this was good for then, but it's not going to happen now, that you simply don't intervene, that your supernatural activity has ceased. Lord, may it never be with us. May we expect you to work. May we not dare put boundaries on what you can do. May we not dictate what you are going to do. May we give you freedom to do as you will in our lives. And in this church, make us a holy people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Let's understand something right off the bat. This is not a revival service, as we typically think of revival services. This is not on a stage for a kind of one-time event. It talks about this being regularly done. Signs and wonders were commonplace during this time. And notice it was among the people. This was not the case of some religious leader making claims that no one could verify. These miracles were public, verifiable, and numerous. Signs are outward manifestations, outward supernatural evidence of God's power and presence. Wonders 
signify the intervention of God that caused people to be gripped with awe, signs and wonders. See, what was happening here could not be explained by natural causes. And I think it really begs a couple questions for us here at CCC. What happens in a church that can only be explained by the presence of God, by the power of God at work? And what are we attempting that could not be done without the power of God? I loved hearing those girls talk. We couldn't see a way, but we asked for God to provide. It had to be God to provide, and he did. That's awesome. But these are questions that every church, every believer really ought to consider in light of what we read in Acts. Signs and wonders, supernatural intervention, manifestations of God at work. As I already prayed, we cannot, we cannot seek to put God in a box and say he cannot or will not do miracles like this. This is for some other dispensation. I wouldn't want to say that. But perhaps one of the best miracles are one of the reasons for signs and wonders that could verify the word and that people could come and see the truth of the gospel and God could change their lives. Perhaps one of the greatest miracles of all is God supernaturally intervening to change lives. To change lives. I mean, how is it that someone could live as an alcoholic and on drugs for years and yet dramatically and decisively stop by the power of God. How is it there are years of separation and hurt and bitterness in a family, and yet God comes in and he brings forgiveness and love and unity? That's the power of God. How is it that after a life of crime, God changes a heart and sets one on a new course? That's the life that experiences the power of God. How is it that a spouse can cheat and there's great pain and there's great hurt that is caused and yet repentance arrives, healing begins and there's reconciliation and there's a, a healthy marriage that sprouts from that. How is that? That's the power of God. You see, these aren't just random stories, this is us. That's right here among us. Real stories from this congregation that indicate that God is still alive and working and his power and his presence are being manifested among us. And what we see is that this church in Acts did not obey the unholy injunction from the religious leaders to stop their gospel preaching. I mean, things went from Peter and John healing one guy near the temple to all the apostles now at work. And the whole city and the surrounding region was abuzz. Now, why were the Jewish leaders so antagonistic toward this thing called the church? Why? It's because as the apostles were preaching the gospel, there were people being freed from this religious bondage that Judaism had them under. 
I mean, it's just like when, when Moses experienced signs and wonders and, and freed the people from Egypt. You have God doing signs and wonders to help people free them from religion. I mean, it's quite interesting to see that the, the very shadow of Peter was far more powerful than the entire religious establishment at that time. The church was still united. And they were together here at this hot spot called Solomon's Colonnader Porch or Portico. It was at the entrance of the temple. Another miracle was that people showed up. After all this had occurred, they still showed up. And a, a massive crowd was, was gathering of new believers. Remember, the church just started. New believers willing to lay it on the line right at the same spot where the two were preaching before. The authorities told them, don't do this. And they all show up in the thousands. I mean, the church not only continued preaching and healing, they did so in the very spot that Peter and John first healed the lame man. Now, I don't think this was because they were trying to rub their nose in it, but this was the best place to meet. This is where people recognize that things happened. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Seems like a paradox. So while the church gathered and new believers were being added, verse 13 says there were a bunch of others that said, you know what, we don't want to have anything to do with this bunch. No thanks. It was far too much at stake. I mean, the, the price was too high. This was for people who are not yet convinced of the gospel, not yet convinced of the benefits of being a, a fully devoted follower of Christ. They weren't true disciples. And the irony here is, and the passage points it out, is that, is that objectively the church was holy. Remember, it just got rid of all of its hypocrites, right? Killed them. It's a new program we're starting. The church was generous. The church was growing. The church was making an impact. And this drew praise from people who could look at it honestly. But knowing the facts about this does not make one a follower of Christ. A person certainly has to acknowledge the facts about Jesus, of who he is and what he's done, but they also have to, by faith, commit to him. They have to abide in the truth of the gospel. They have to obey the, the call of discipleship. And again, many find it too hard, too costly, too much. It's why in a town such as Springfield, you have religious Christians who attend the meetings, but they never think deep enough about what a, a biblical worldview means and, and to live under that. You have cultural Christians who love to wear the trappings of Christianity for social purposes, but they never let it get beyond that. And you now have progressive Christians who believe some of the Bible, but reject the hard parts. They fashion a life of Christ in their own making. But notice the discipleship in Acts 5.13 was marked by joining a faith community, being a part of something bigger than themselves. I think it's safe to say you cannot be a faith 
faithful disciple and forego being a part of a community of faith. There's no such thing. Yeah, I mean, technically, I suppose you could be called a Christian and not a disciple. Technically. Without being fully devoted to Christ. But it's kind of like saying, you know, I love my wife. I just don't want to be married. That doesn't make sense. Well, like I said, technically that could be true, but it's inconsistent. It's incoherent. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy. What's, what's a cross? It's, it's suffering. It's, it's hardship. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We're talking about true disciples now. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, everything that a church should be doing is developing, training, and releasing disciples. And some folks just aren't up for that. I mean, they can go to a fellowship for even years, and then they're confronted about something in their life, and they they just don't want to submit to God in that area. They don't want to change. They don't want to admit their fault. It's a lot easier to blame someone else. I mean, it could be they have bitterness in their heart. And the fellowship of the saints sheds light on it. And so they want to get out from under it. It's just better to move on. Or perhaps a marriage is at a point where there's a hurdle to cross, a sin to to confront And maybe you don't want others to know. People are getting too close. It's better just not to be a part of that, you think. Perhaps your parenting even has reached a level where parents refuse to confront their child or children, refuse to submit to Scripture, but they see other children and other parents and they start comparing, they start getting jealous, they start getting competitive, and suddenly it becomes everybody else's fault that your kids are misbehaving. And discipleship demands that you work out such issues in community and that you work out your obedience with fear and trembling. That tells me it's not going to be easy. And instead what people do is they take their same problems, they deposit them somewhere else, and then they forego maturity. And they really turn their back on true discipleship. The point is that a church is a mixed bag of experiences, is it not? It's not all hunky-dory. It can be hardship. It can be admonishment. It can be confrontation. Yes, there's joy, but it's not all that. But that's all a part of discipleship. It's not meant to be easy, but it's meant to be an environment that fosters maturity. That's the church. That's what was taking place in Acts. And not everybody was up for it. And we see some reasons why. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 4. Mark 4. Starting with verse 3. Listen, a sower went out to sow, 
And as he sowed, some feed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. For those who are outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, where they hear. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown, that was sown in them. And these are the ones who, uh, the ones sown on rocky ground and The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a little while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns, and these are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches and the desire of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. You see, there are some people who just don't understand or get it. We have to understand that that's going to be the case. And, and, and a church will have kind of this whole plethora of, of, of people in its midst, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stop challenging, stop calling people to being true disciples. And here, the writer of the gospel says, when trouble comes, many will fall away. See, the word takes a back seat to other agendas like riches and things. And because a person goes to a church a long time does not mean that they are a faithful disciple of Christ. And a person who claims to be a Christian doesn't mean that there has been a breaking of their will before God. There are many Christians who run around like a a pouting teenager in rebellion against God, calling themselves Christians, but never submitting to the ultimate authority above them. Disciples submit. When a Christian does not have joy in the fellowship of the saints, they only look for what's positive and what feels good. They don't know what it means to mature. You have to understand that disciples experience joy in deep fellowship. Or when a Christian worries about the future, they're not sure it's worth it. That disobedience, it's going to cause trouble. I may lose some friends. I may even lose a family. They've not learned to trust God. See, disciples trust God for their future. When a Christian is so busy putting up unhealthy boundaries to the point that they've left behind family and friends, basically because it's just too hard. They've not worked to resolve it. 
They walk in unforgiveness. Discipleship demands that we forgive past offenses. He who has an ear, let him hear. Discipleship is not easy. Because it brings things to light. It works in the deep soils of our hearts. And not everybody's up for that. Not everybody's up for that. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Notice that Luke mentions how the women were added giving more value to women than what the culture did. Remember, it was women who saw the empty tomb and testified to it. They couldn't even testify in court. And here were the scriptures lifting the value of women, recognizing their testimony. And another place where women are mentioned, and they played a key role in the, in the health and the growth of the church. But we see here that in the wake of of persecution externally in the wake of a a call of holiness within, the church exploded. It exploded. And one thing I think we have to come to grips with is how we approach this thing even of, of church growth. That the church does not exist to become attractive to everyone. Can we agree with that? The church does not exist to be attractive to everyone. Now certainly, our obedience includes loving well, feeding the poor, respecting all, treating all with honor. But we do not compromise biblical values. We do not adopt and be whole in on just some attractional model so that everybody will like us. Jesus said, follow me. He also said he will build his church. You wonder if the church culture has got it backwards. They say, we want Jesus to follow us, and we're going to build the church. Invariably, we get in trouble when we don't trust him enough to follow him at all costs. We don't believe him enough to build his church. We dumb down discipleship so much it's not even recognizable. Again, Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would love, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We've kind of turned that around. It's, it's almost now like, now whoever does not love his couch... And follow me is not worthy. Whoever finds the American dream and learns to follow his desires, he will find his life because he understands that God wants to make us happy. Is that not the case of much of Christianity? You know, the point is when we read through the book of Acts, These were not Christians who were comfortable. They were uncomfortable. They were being persecuted. But they still did not worry about their future in Christ because they were serving another kingdom. They didn't worry about losing money or being taken advantage of. 
They were not trying to stake their claim. They lived with abandon toward Christ as servants of the Most High God, and they'll let God take care of the rest. And here's what was happening. You'd think after all this had happened, people would scatter. Listen to these different passages throughout Acts and see if you can't find a pattern. Acts 2, and those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Later on in that chapter, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Acts 6, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Don't you think at that point, I mean, the persecution was ramping up to be red hot because the priests are now coming to Christ. Acts 9, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. See, what is taking place is that Jesus was making good on his promise. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The sick, the afflicted, unclean spirits, they all found freedom in Christ, and they were healed. I mean, the apostles were merely conduits of of what God was doing. The sick are those who suffer from from physical ailments, and the the afflicted are those who are troubled and and disturbed and distressed. And then there's the the unclean spirits are those who are are demonically influenced and impacted. And the point is is that Jesus brings healing to to those who, who need healing physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So in any time of need, God can touch us and bring healing. Isn't that great news? There was, a, there was a tsunami of people when they understood this, wanting to take part in this healing. I mean, they, they were willing to be carried, laid out, gathered, brought before the apostles. And if they couldn't get close enough, then maybe they could just get touched by the shadow of Peter. And some say, you know, that was maybe superstitious of them to do that. Well, you know, in Mark 6, 56, it talks about people wanting to just touch the, you know, the, the hem of Jesus' garment to be healed. And in Acts 9, 19, 12, it's a, a story about Peter and people were bringing handkerchiefs, or, or Paul, excuse me, uh, wanting to bring handkerchiefs just for him to touch so they could take back to people who were sick and they could be healed. I mean, the point is the vehicles aren't the thing. I don't think this is some kind of pattern we're to follow necessarily, but what it is is that people were just so desperate And they wanted God to touch them, to heal them. I don't care if it's a hanky, a hem, whatever it is, a shadow, God touch me. And people were in that place, they understood they were sick, and they needed a touch from God's hand. Could we? Could we in our own hearts? get to a point where we expect God to work.
we want him, are available for him to work through us. He would begin to move out and walk in the kind of faith that if God doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. May God make us, CCC, a miracle-working territory. Let's pray.